0: Welcome back to Love, Life, and Legacy, the official podcast of the universe. And we help people navigate these hypersexualized times of ours. And in today's episode, we have a true crusader. This man, his name is Dr. Robert Kittle, has been working on the front lines of helping to promote sexual sanity, right? Stop giving your sex away, stop feeling isolated, stop cheapening the human experience and start experiencing everything that god has in store for you by heightening your standards and living up to those standards and dr robert kittle started in america but then he's expanded his vision to southeast asia and as we'll get into he's spoken in front of hundreds of thousands of people at a time about sexual purity which is quite a feat and something i didn't even know was possible until i heard him say this stuff so please learn from this man He's at the age where many people consider retiring, and it's like Dr. Kittle's only getting started. He's ramping up. He's fired up. So let's give it up to Dr. Robert Kittle.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We're here for a really special episode with you guys. We're interviewing the one, the only, literally the only, when people say that, sometimes they don't really mean it. We mean it. The only Dr. Robert Kittle. Are generously shared with us his time and to impart us his wisdom. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Dr. Kittle.
2: My pleasure to be here, Sammy.
1: Thank you. And of course, Andrew. Yeah, that guy. He's yeah, I'm
0: tagging along right. today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so, Andrew, why don't you introduce why we have Dr. Kittle on?
0: Yeah, well, Dr. Kittle has been at a few of our events speaking, and he's very passionate about abstinence education, purity education. And that's something that is a taboo topic in America these days. There's less and less emphasis on that, as even being a possibility for people. They, I mean, the standards kind of so low in America. They're like, that's not even possible. Don't even try to teach abstinence. Just tell them about how to use a condom. Show them use a cucumber or whatever. So we've we've heard you know lore of the size of the events of these purity stadium events going on in Southeast Asia. But more than that, it's you as a person. You're a very real person as well. And we also know that there's stuff going on on the ground. Events don't necessarily fix the problem, but just the fact that you can have these events is very impressive. But also you're on the ground and you're seeing kind of a totally different vantage point than most people about the nature of absolute sex and the impact of, you know, the Eastern perspective of sexuality, the good stuff, and also their challenges. I'd love to hear about that. But yeah, you just have a vantage point from kind of being up high like on on the stage in a very big kind of way and look at this guy but you're also you're not that guy you're you're a really real person who really just cares about God or heaven parent and is trying to help people in a very sincere way so you're on the ground talking to people too usually it's one or the other you're like a, a man of the people or you're like a man in a suit on a stage talking but you can't be both but I really feel you're both and you do both very very well and so I, I was really excited to have you So I wanted to first paint a picture for especially all the Western listeners as to what these big events look like, these purity events you've been putting on and what was the evolution of, because I'm sure you didn't start with stadiums, but like, how did it start? And then how did it progress into the kind of movement that it did? Because you've been an integral component. You've been on the ground, right? Since the beginning?
2: Underground or on the ground?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Both. You're omnipresent. You're everywhere.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Andrew and uh, Sammy, for having this. I respect what you're doing in High Noon. I think it's important to have this bold message that has kind of thought and intellect behind it and the passion and uh, the clarity of purpose is really, really important for young people to have that. So I'm honored to be on and thank you for that. The Pure Love Education, I had done that in the United States before coming to Asia and basically just kind of brought the same concept here. And it does depend on the culture that you're in. When I was working in a Muslim country, then they're actually quite open to that. For them, the concept of sexual purity is strong and clear. The prohibition of fornication and adultery are very clear. And so if you are a practicing Muslim, these are pretty much up front in your culture and in your scenario and in, you know the way you do it. They are still struggling with that. The real kind of paradigm shift came when we started to work in a Buddhist country in Thailand. And. Because we had a foundation of working with young people, we reached out into the public schools and started working with the government, Department of Education particularly. And we didn't go in there with the answers. That was not our approach. We went in there as, as how can we work together and how can we partner to make it better? We have something we can offer and the government surely, surely has something that they can offer. And what we did, surprising to me, was they wanted to rewrite the Pure Love Pledge. And we thought, well, okay, let's sit down and, and kind of what do you want in it? What do we want in it? Can we find common ground? And then we did that in the government because it's a Buddhist country, because they have a kingdom there, because they honor and respect their king. They wanted that as the approach for young people, that if they're going to make this you know, pledge of purity, then also they wanted a pledge of kind of you know, honoring and respecting their king. And we thought, well, that's fine, because, you know, the king is the parent of the country. And, you know, for us, that works together. If that's what they want, then let's put that in there. And then the Buddhist concept of the right path or the right way, the right moniker, the eightfold path. So they wanted young people to kind of have some kind of wordage that could connect to their religious heritage tradition. We thought, well, that's okay, because we also talk about the right principle, the right way. So they we found out that they're using different words, but actually we're aiming at the same overall concepts. And so that being able to work together was a big, big plus. In fact, without it, you can't work with the government. When we went to Palau, in the Philippines, they pretty much take it as it is, and they have a very strong Pure Love Pledge, pretty pretty much the way it is, and we're working with the government. It's a Christian nation, and so they're open to that. When we went to Palau, they were... Hesitant with the strongness of the direct message of sexual purity. They felt it would be too strong, I think primarily because there's a lot of sexual promiscuity within the culture. And so they were uncomfortable with that. The government were working with the office of the president in this case. And we said, Well, what would you like? And they said, Well, we like the concept of filial piety, honoring mm-hmm. the parents. And so they have a tribal Messiah or a tribal culture, a matriarchal culture, actually. So honoring the mother is even more important. We said, that's fine too. We can teach young people to honor their parents. And that is really the foundation for sexual purity. In the West, the model that we use, and I was even creating curriculum for that, was the CC model, you know, condoms and consent. And when you break that down, it's really a a medical approach or kind of a, a sociological reasoning. But they are both focusing on the individual. Don't get a disease, don't get pregnant, or don't get somebody pregnant, and don't get accused later on. It boils down to you're protecting yourself either physically or emotionally in one way or the other. And then uh, that's where the safe sex comes from, that concept of safe sex. But the idea of, of filial piety goes actually deeper and more foundational than that. We talk about the four realms of heart, the parental love, then the conjugal love, that's the sexual side. And then before that there is the siblings' love. And even before that is the children's love, the filial love. And then when we look at it in that sense, we realized the foundation of sexual purity is the two previous loves. And the ultimate foundation is the is the parental love itself, the filial love itself. And that resonated with the culture of Asia. That is an Asian thing, it's a Confucian thing. As you've mentioned earlier in our talk before the show, Andrew, it's a tribal thing. It's part of the tribe, and it's the role that uh, kind of the adhesiveness that keeps the culture together. So it's kind of okay to talk about it here.
0: Can I pick your yeah. brain about that real quick? Because this is a this is something that really piqued my interest when I heard you speaking at our twenty four hour summit. And I just want to emphasize that this is not in most people's awareness. I mean, most people that I know, maybe I'm hanging out with the wrong people, but like that you would equate filial piety together with kind of absolute sex or sexual integrity or something. Usually those things are, you know, your relationship with your parents and and sex are like worlds apart, especially now, honestly, in the West where it is so individualistic that you don't consult with your parents in any way, shape or form about who you're dating or whatever. It's just based on your feelings. So. I'd be very interested to unpack that a bit because it's a really deep point. And you emphasize it. It really struck me. Like in the 24-hour summit, there's two things that I remember. One thing that Reverend Compton said, one thing that you said. And I was listening to people talk for 24 hours. And those are the two things that stuck out. And I wanted to really figure out what what, is this, what does this mean? Please help, I guess, the Western world understand, because we're pretty weak on filial piety, as you may have noticed. <laughs> Much better in the East than the West. But like, how does that, How are those two things connected, sexuality and filial piety? Please explain.
2: For me also, it was kind of revelatory in trying to make that connection and trying to find something more powerful. I could see that the persuasive power of sexual purity just for the individual had limited impact. That was obvious. It wasn't that powerful. And so I kept searching for more deeper understanding. And the real kind of linchpin was when mother appointed me as the chairman or president of the Youth and Students for Peace. And then she said, I would like you to develop, she called it original nature education. I said, all right. Then she said, that would be the education that Adam and Eve should have had in the Garden of Eden that would have prevented the fall. And I go, "Mm, that's interesting. That's a really, actually a really good direction to go into. So I started looking at that and then I I realized that the sexual side of the fall wasn't the cause of the fall. It's a result of something much deeper. The sexual side of the fall was the cause of two lineages. That's clear. That there now are two lineages. There's a good and an evil. You know, one centered on God originally it has been unfruitful and yet and now the new one centered on Satan. So you, you have the two lineages are caused by the sexuality being misused in the Garden of Eden. That was clear. But there had to be something deeper than that, uh, that actually caused that. And then I started to just look, reread the Bible again. And it was uh, a simple reread. And then suddenly all these insights came out. And I was surprised by myself to realize what what is being kind of understood. And I, I looked at Adam and Eve, and I said, okay, God gave the commandment, uh, do not eat. But that's kind of the external side of the commandment, the internal part of that do not eat commandment is a relationship between God and Adam as a parent and a child. And so not only in order for Adam to keep that commandment, he has to have a heartistic relationship with God. If there's no heartistic relationship between God and Adam, then the impact of the commandment, the power of the commandment will not be very forceful. So then I thought, well, what did Adam failed to do? What why didn't Adam have this filial relationship with God? And then all of these kind of lights are going off and I'm going, Well, how did Adam respond when God gave Adam the commandment? And that means, well what did he say? What did he do? Did he say thank you? No. Did he say, I got some questions here? Could I could we talk about this a little bit more? No. Did he say, you know, he could even question God. You know, look at The animals are doing it. Why not? What's what's the deal here? I mean, what's what? What are you doing? And so, this lack of dialogue, lack of communication between God as the parent and the child, to me, diluted the impact of the commandment. It had no power because we know that give and take creates power. So, if there's no give and take between God and Adam, there's no power for the commandment to take hold. No power at all. And then I realized, well, that. Adam, what should he have done? He should have seen what God had done or sacrificed or given already and acknowledged that. And then his heart to communicate would be open. God made Adam and Eve in the image of God. We know that from the Bible. He gave them the three great blessings you know, dominion, take dominion over everything. He created a garden for them, gave them things to eat. He breathed his spirit into them. You know, he said, You can name all the things of creation. And then he gave them, you know, he gave Eve to Adam leave your father and mother, leave your wife, and we can go into that because that also unpacks that filial piety thing. But then I realized God is sacrificing again and again and again, but Adam isn't letting the sacrifice of the parent come into his heart. So it's really not God's lack of sacrifice. The Bible says on the sixth day, God rested. doesn't mean he's tired. It means he's sacrificed everything he has. He has nothing more to give is what it really means. And uh, so then I realized this lack of communication. If you look at it sociologically, it's it's a, you know, right on. Talk to the parents. What is your communication relationship with your children? If that's healthy, then, you know, the children, you can more than likely have the children grow up healthy and strong. So the communication is part of it. The other side of it is that if there's this love relationship between the parent and the child through this communication, then The instruction or the commandment that the parents are giving to the children will be seen as an expression of love. If that love isn't there and the parents are giving commandments, then it's going to be oppression. You just want to control me. You want to dominate me. And that's how it will be read, not the intention of the parent, but the receptivity of that from the child. So, this connection of love and law together bringing them together gives the power to the commandment, "Do not eat" if it had been there. I mean, and then it wasn't. And then that multiplies the next level of uh, love is the parent or the brother and sister relationship. And Eve obviously had questions. she wanted to know more. and so but who did she turn to? Who did she ask her question to? Who was the object of her question? Not her older brother, not God. Her father, her parent, the archangel. Well, that tells you that the artistic relationship, again, between the parent and the child, between Eve and her parent, God, and between Eve and her older brother, that communication wasn't there. She's having all kinds of communication with the archangel, <laughs> all kinds of questions, and getting the wrong advice because she asked the wrong person. <laughs> it's kind of that simple.
0: <laughs> well, it, it is. Be very- And it's very um, telling about our modern society and how High Noon has evolved to helping people understand that that is freedom is when you start reconnecting to your parents, reconnecting to your, you know, we have men's group where men talk with each other. They're learning that realm of heart of connecting with brothers. And we have women's group working on the sister level and kind of restoring those relationships. That's actually very healing for people. And I never really equated that necessarily to the the origin story of humanity, right? But it actually, it it paints a very clear picture of if that's where things began, then that's where things need to be restored, right? Those are the relationships that need to be healed. That's very insightful. And that all came from a command that you got that was a loving command from your mother, right? To create this new education that you could have griped about, I'm sure, and said, original education that's so abstract and if you were stuck in your head could have complained but instead you turned it into you saw the heart behind the request and it turned into revelation after revelation of your own understanding about a story that you've heard probably a hundred thousand times before that but you couldn't gain access to this knowledge because you that, that's a really cool story i mean on many levels it's so cool
2: yeah that was uh, that was the catalyst clearly the catalyst to try to attend your to mother in this request that she had given the brother-sister relationship is really important because it's a relationship of love of opposite sexes that doesn't involve sexuality. And that is the overwhelming majority of your experiences. You're going to have sex with one person, but you're going to have thousands and millions of men and women of the opposite sex. So how do you develop this heart to love someone from the opposite sex limiting and not allowing the sexuality to be part of that that's a really important where does that come from really that comes from the heart of the parent and it comes from the creation of a lineage if the parents want their lineage to be bequeathed then that lineage needs to be singular once it starts breaking and fracturing then again the power of the lineage will be diluted and you can see that immediately within the first generation if there is a couple that is that a marriage fractures then it fractures all the relationships of the relatives as well and in many cases even the inheritance that the parents would want to give to that child is going to be uncertain and, and the the support group that would come you know from the relatives and from that family would also be fractured so it's really important that this horizontal love between the different sexes be very clear what is sexual and what is not sexual. And there's only one one partner, one person that you should have a sexual relationship with. That needs to be very clear. The question is why, and <laughs> the answer is simple, because <laughs> there's only one God, and you should have one lineage. So if you've got one God and one lineage, then how many, how many husbands and wives should you have? <laughs> If you want that lineage to be strong and clear, then the lineage becomes part of the strengthening process of that purity of sexuality rather than just purity for the sake of the purity. And then it takes it out of the immediate realm of this immediate time, immediacy of time, and it puts it into a historical, the lineage, and what will I bequeath to my children? What lineage will I give to my children? So it takes the emphasis not just on the immediacy of the issue but on the longevity, and it takes a, his, a vertical historical time within that lineage process. So lineage is an important part of this purity element as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's honestly, in many ways, science is catching up to religion to explain why that's important, because even like the purity of lineage, there's like the DNA aspect, which is... Um, more material based and more more based on like, you know, stuff that you can measure. But they're also starting to figure out that the purity of the relationship that came before pregnancy and what was going on environmentally in within the individuals within the couple and really impacts the type of offspring that they have and the type of journey that their kids have. It's like really important. The type of individuals that you are prior to having kids. And because, I mean, pure lineage can seem like hard to grasp, especially for a younger person, but kind of like epigenetics and all that, they're all proving just what you're talking about in a very real time way that if you would like to give the best of your past to your future, then you need to really be clear and give the best of yourself to the person that you're creating. And that formulates a human out of those two entities. And it's like, it's, it's very present tense, you know, because sometimes, the, honestly, the story of the fall is a little bit hard to relate to. I always think about, do they have shoes back then? Do they wear hats? Was there any fashion? <laughs> like, What was going on back then? Uh, it, you kind of get lost in the details because it's so kind of difficult to imagine. But when you put the blueprint of that, of that origin story together with the blueprint of people's present day experience, it's so similar. And the repercussions are the same. They're identical to what happens if you do listen to that kind of godliness from your parents and whether you disobey that, the results will be the same as the story of Adam and
2: Eve. Exactly, you're exactly right on Andrew, this is true. The sociological studies that I have read are unanimous, that marriage and family are good for kids. It's unquestioned. Decades of research, thousands of peer reviews articles, there's no doubt about that. In fact, even the sociologists, the problem is you cannot take sociological data alone and convince religious people. It doesn't work. Some people maybe, but you know, if you're deeply religious, it's not gonna be the, the linchpin that will, you know, bring you into it. So even I've read in sociological studies, they are asking the religious people to please redo their theology of marriage and family. And um, that's actually an important kind of contribution that I think we can make in this area. Others are working in the area as well. But the importance of lineage, that means the purpose of sexuality now takes on a very different purpose. And that needs to be very, very clear. Uh, You can go back and look at the, the ladder that we build of sexuality, starting with atoms, you know, protons and electrons. Okay, you've got this plus and minus right there. And what is the purpose of that? Well, this existence that you can't have an atom unless you have a proton and an electron. So existence is based on this polarity, this, uh, I shouldn't use the word polarity, but this pair system principle. Uh, Interestingly, in the atom, (laughs) the atom has a nucleus that has protons and neutrons in the nucleus. And the neutron has the weight of the proton and no charge. So it's kind of like somehow the proton and the electron, I use the word. The proton and the electron got married. and it's interesting, but the neutron is what gives stability to the atom. So the institution of marriage, if we took that and just just from that alone and extrapolate that, well, marriage gives stability to our society. That's true. That's really, really true. But then you go to the next level in plants and you've got the stamen and the pistol. And the purpose of that is reproduction. Okay, They have to reproduce, they have to have fruit, go to the next level of the ladder. And you've got animals. And what is the purpose of animal sex? And people will say, well, it's of course to have offspring. And that's true. And pleasure as well. So pleasure and procreation are there. And then ask them, well, what is the purpose of human sexuality? And they'll say, well, pleasure and procreation. And then you'll say, well, no, that's animal sex. That's already, but human sex should add something to it. It will include that. So the Pleasure and procreation of animals includes reproduction, includes existence, but then they're, all, they're building on that. So what is the purpose of human sexuality? What is its ultimate purpose? And the purpose is really, I have realized, is to bring a man and a woman together and bond them in the image of God. Bond them together. Animals don't do that. So in the animal world, you can have sex and die. You, the salmon spawn and die, you know, and it's okay because there's nothing beyond that. And in the mammal world, you know that only they have sex during estrus when when the woman is fertile. But in human sexuality, it's very interesting (laughs) because we have sex after the woman is infertile. The woman cannot have kids, but we're still having sex. Animals don't do that. (laughs) So there is a purpose of human sexuality that includes pleasure, procreation, reproduction, existence of the species but out to something more. And that's man and a woman coming together to be in the image of God. And that image of God means the lineage of God, that we are connected to the lineage of God. And that lineage has to be singular to be powerful and clear. So there's one God, and there should be therefore one lineage. And therefore the question of how many men are women, how many husbands and wives? Well, the answer is very, very clear, one. Because once you share that sexuality, that sexuality creates love, as Father said, yes, and it creates life, yes, and it creates lineage. Love creates lineage. So if you misuse love, you create another lineage, and suddenly your lineage is fractured, and then it becomes less powerful within you as a motivating factor.
1: Wow, that's that's very really amazing. I'm curious what, so this is the kind of education you've given in Asia for de, for. That specific, I'm not sure how long, but what kind of reception is it? Or, or I imagine in a lot of these countries, sex is not such an openly discussed topic. So to talk about sex so frankly like this, what kind of response do you actually get?
2: I remember when I was in India and I was speaking to, I was invited by the, the head of the religious <laughs> order that they were there, Swami Shiva Marta Shivacharya. And I was speaking to about 300,000 people. And um,
1: <laughs> it's a lot of With people, the t- for the record, all of you listening in.
2: <laughs> you know, India is interesting because India invented the zero. The, the zero, huh. India invented, why? Right? Because the Romans, they don't have big families. So for them, 10 or 20 is okay. And you, In Roman numbers, you can count it to 20 easily. But how can you count millions of people in the Roman numeral system? You can't do it. <laughs> you can't do it. So the Indians invented zero. Anyway, because they have... Millions and millions and millions of people, and Mm -hmm. so they needed to count them, and they you can't do with the Roman system. So anyway, we had about three hundred thousand people there, and uh, I just wondered what am I going to talk about. So I just started to read the Pure Love Pledge, the American version, kind of line by line. You know, Uh, the love between a man and a woman is a sacred gift from God. And they 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 applauded. (laughs) I go, (laughs) really? And then I would explain that, and you know, and then you know the next verse, and I took it line by line. And I realized this is common ground that we can, if we handle it correctly, if we mishandle it, it will be working against us also. So we've got to be careful. We've got to know our audience. And I know that uh, family is strong in India. I know that uh, sexuality is not normally talked about, but I have the privilege of being a a non-Indian, a Westerner. So I can speak about that. Knowing your audience is really, really important. And then you can you can craft your message so that it can be received. Uh, and if you don't do that, you don't know your audience. The same message, misquoted or misstated, might be uh, have the opposite effect of what you're trying to do. So, and then again, in the, it depends. In the Philippines, it's a Christian culture, so we can use the Bible a lot, and we quote mm-hmm. from other other verses as well. I mean, we, the different religious scriptures we can quote from all of them on this issue. They're all very clear, actually. It's kind of the common point of religion is, number one, they all talk about honoring your parents, your father and mother, as the Bible does. All of them talk about that. They all talk about the prohibition, a warning of sexuality outside of marriage. Uh, and they do so in the strongest language, almost life and death type terminology. Don't do it, you know. And they talk about the sacredness of marriage. I mean, every religion has marriage ceremony. Their ceremonies are different. Yes, they are some of them light candles and make prayers and some of them read scriptures and some of them have beads and some of them have fires and walk around this and tie strings and they do it in different ways fine but the concept of marriage is central to every religion it's a common point that we can work together on
0: i mean first of all 300,000 people i'm still stuck on that that's an enormous amount of of people and so you've You've adapted this message for different audiences. Like you said, you did your research and you've you've given this uh, to different cultural backgrounds. And what do you see as, as working? Like when you do these big stadium talks, a lot of times it can feel like, you know, simultaneously, wow, we're, we're having this conversation and it's great, but it, I, I imagine it's also possible to feel the impact of, well, how, how much can just one talk do? And every culture has a lot of it problems with sexuality I know there's a lot of things going on in India I know every culture in every society in every country has issues with sexuality so I'd love to hear from you on your on the ground boots when you're working with these countries what what do you see as some major roadblocks and also I'd love I'd love to hear about some of your victories about you know some some cultures that are making some progress in this fight you know to create more stable families, healthier sexuality, like I'd love to hear both some of the challenges and some of the victories, if you don't mind. Because you I mean you're very well versed. And and I guess the, the countries that you're really focusing on live.
2: And it's a very important question that you ask. And it's called and it's uh, kind of the shortfall of most NGOs is how do you show the impact of your success? And I've struggled with this and I've kind of come to the point where we've got to deal with it. We had a program in Thailand before the pandemic started, and these were the leaders of our movement, and they are, we had a military general who's ADC to the King. We had a lady who is a big businesswoman in Thailand, media magnates. I mean, we, we very high-level people, and it was about maybe 15 of us, a small group, and uh, military generals and police officers. And they all came and said the same thing. They said, "We really like what you're doing. We really like it, but we cannot help you." unless you can prove what you are doing. We need the data. We need the statistics. And that's how governments work. And they know that because they are part of the government. We had, we had a, a chief district officer who's been with us for you know many years and helping us. And he said, this is how they work. So then I came back to the Philippines. Let me, a little bit more about Thailand. When we went there, I attended programs that we had done in the school system and afterwards talked to the teachers. And the teachers told me, we are watching the data. That's what they do. That's the government job. And they say year by year, the situation with young people is getting worse. We can see the data. How many people drop out of school? How many drug addicts? How many sexual pregnancies? How many abortions? How many suicides? And they see the data. So they know it's getting worse. It's not a question in their mind. And it's like, they are the parent. If they're the government, then they are the parent of that country. And they want to solve the problem. No parent wants to see their child die slowly. I mean, that would be the, that would be worse. And that's what they're doing. And so the government is trying. And then they are inviting other people, not only us, but many other groups as well. And they told me, your program is the best, but we need the data. We've got to document that. And so when I came back to the Philippines, I said, okay, let's do that. Let's document our success. And we started an online education program. It's for adult educators. But, okay, let's start there. It's based on our 12 years of this, we called it Asia, Pacific, Asia Leadership Conference. Every month, we would have the VIPs, the mayors, the congressmen, political leaders, religious leaders, media people come and have a two-day, three-day program in Bangkok. And uh, it was going on. Dr. Young emphasized that, and we did that really every month for 12 years while he was here. And uh, then with the COVID, we have to go online, and that was difficult. So we started up, and last year we did two programs online, our first two programs. And then I said, let's retool our survey and let's ask questions that can help us show the effectiveness of our program. So because I'm in the Philippines. And I'm looking at the laws that are passed and studying this from the the legal perspective. And what I did is I drew up seven survey questions, and they're based on the laws of the government of the Philippines. But I'm sure it can be applied otherwhere, other, other places, the same methodology. So what I did was I said, let's look at, I looked at three pieces of legislation that are actually in the same group. Senate Bill 1224, House Bill 5829, and those two, the Senate Bill dealt more with the uh, secondary school education and the House Bill dealt more with the primary school education. They were combined together and called the Republic Act 11476. So I read these pieces of legislation because these were the pieces of Uh, lawmakers, they're now law in the Philippines, and they were focused on developing what they call GMRC, good manners and right conduct, that's for the primary school children, and values education for the secondary school children. So, And they mandated a K-12 one-hour daily program in the Philippine public and private schools. It was signed into law by President Tutorte in June of last year, six months ago. So I said, okay, this is our target. This is what our program should do. If we can help the government fulfill what they, their laws are, then we can work together with the government. So I brought, after reading those, I developed seven questions, and I put it in a Likert scale of five five degrees. Very poor, poor, fair, good, and excellent. And the seven areas that I measured was one, Building a patriotic spirit in youth, because that's part of the legislation. The words and the language I just took from the legal documents and put them in question form. Number two, developing inherent human dignity. Number three, accelerating social progress. Number four, uplifting moral, spiritual, and social well-being of students. Number five, promoting universal values. Number six, advocating the role of parents in moral development of children. Number seven, demonstrating the importance of marriage and family. So then we had these seven survey questions based on this Likert scale. And we had 316 registered guests in our first two online webinars from 17 nations. There were 149 graduates. And of those, there was 125 who took the survey. So we've got a good sampling to start with. We were astounded at the impact of our survey, the education program, 73% said the program was excellent, giving it the highest mark, 73%. 24% said it was good. 3% said it was fair. No one said it was poor or very poor. So if we recategorize that 73% and 24%, that means 97% of the people that did this education program when asked how this would be measured against the survey questions that we developed from the law of the government of the Philippines, said 97% said it's above average. That's amazing. And actually more importantly, no one criticized it. If you wanna take a public education program into the schools and you've got people that are criticizing you, you are sunk before you get started. So we are now working with educators here in the Philippines to make we just had a program on Sunday with our UPF education wing, or of the UPF side, called the International Association of Academics for Peace. And they said, what we need to do if we want to have this program really successful, they called it a Department of Character Integrity, or the government of the Philippines. And they said, we should bring in the police. We should bring in religious leaders. We should bring in parents. We should bring in educators we should bring in you know, even media people and have this department so that it's not left to one sector or one individual, but it becomes a focal point, how we can implement and develop. Because they said, we don't want to just change children. You can't do that. You've got to change the culture. You can't change the children and leave the parents or change the parents and children and leave the culture. You've got to change the culture. So this is the goal that we're working on now in the next seven years, is how can we bring this Department of Character Integrity to fruition, which would be a model, again, for other governments to look at. And interestingly, it's kind of taking what Mother has done with UPF and developed it into six different associations. And what she has said is, okay, if we want to develop this heavenly unified world culture or heavenly unified Korea, there are many players. You have to have a multi-sectorial approach. You can't just do it in one area. You've got to be uh, the big picture, and everybody has to be a player. All the stakeholders have to be at the table, have a voice, work together, take ownership, and that's what we're looking for now in the Philippines.
0: You're playing the game. Yeah. You want data? He's going to bring you data. He's going to bring you reams of data. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much to it, right? There's so many layers of bureaucracy, and I guess everybody just has a boss, and they have to prove that you're trustworthy and all that. So it's a great approach. High Noon has, has a lot to learn about that, right? <laughs> We're not so good with the data. We're getting better too, but... Yeah.
2: yeah for the government, data is their Bible. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well, I guess in democratic countries. <laughs> in uh, oppressive right. countries, they, they don't like data so much. So yeah, that's, that's really impressive because you're working on many different fronts. You're on the awareness front, you're in the educational front. And I think that was a great challenge that the government gave to you, those those agencies, those wings of the government to become more data driven and to prove your result. Because that, that kind of brings out the best of us too. A lot of us can go by feelings alone. It was a great event. Why? Because it felt good. Everybody was happy. It's like, did anything change? I don't know, but it felt really good. But, you know, they challenge you to kind of quantify it and that's that's good for everybody and because i'm positive that you are doing great work it's just you haven't been able to show that in a piece of paper which i will definitely you know it'll have a cascade effect over time because if you can do this in one country in the philippines it could go to thailand it can go all all over southeast asia so that's really inspiring and so in terms of progress I'd love to hear, yeah, what are, what, what's some progress that you feel the culture is making? Also, what do you think some stumbling blocks are? Because honestly, when you hear about a country like the Philippines, you know, or Thailand, they're very confusing because on the one hand, my experience with these cultures are they're extremely family oriented. They're very humble people, very religious. And, but then there are also these hubs of human trafficking and a bunch of like, you know, there's still a lot of, Sexual promiscuity. So, like, it'd be interesting to hear what are the progress that you're making and some of the the roadblocks that you're experiencing as well.
2: In Thailand, we worked with several years ago. We had a program. I think it was a women's federation had a program with the Department of Women's Leaders, and they brought in one expert in terms of criminology. And they said they told us that you know you're taking on a huge, huge. Kind of force because there are three areas that work together generally drugs sex and violence and those three are they beyond the law beyond the government regulation the government is trying to deal with that and even the government is hamstrung because these networks are international they are going beyond the borders of even their own country and yet their legal Ramification is limited to their their distinct border. They can't go, you know, outside of their border and arrest people for these things. So they said, you know, it's something that we've all got to realize. It's kind of at at the core of the problem. I identify it as kind of selfish individualism uh, has no limits, and that can then it can it's, it's that's what they're dealing with. It's manifesting in different ways in sex and drugs and crimes. But uh, and I don't care about other people. I just want to sell drugs. I want to, you know, traffic women. I want to kill or whatever it is just to protect. So it's that selfish individualism that is really at the core of of these issues that we're dealing with. It's a long-term project, and it's a big one. One thing we're working with also within uh, now the Korean movement is trying to bring unification of our homeland of Korea, and uh, they're looking for models for where we can have programs. And I think One of the issues is, again, even America and China, the issues of this, the immorality of, I would say, to be honest, in some of the communist countries, the morality is clearer and stronger than in democratic countries. And I think it's because of the restrictions that are there. So to just give unlimited freedom to do anything, anytime, I don't see that as as healthy. I think freedom, freedom has to be connected with responsibility. If you disconnect it and you just have freedom, then that freedom easily becomes selfish individualism as destructive to the individual and to relationships that are trying to be formed and families that are trying to be formed from that. So maybe we need an interview down the road a ways and I'll I'll give you the success in seven years. But that's what we're looking with. The goals that mother is asking of, you know, seven you know, we have seven point two, three, four billion people. And a very high percentage of those who engage. My feeling, if, if for example, this model uh, in the Philippines, if it goes and we are working with the government, then we can technically kind of claim this nation of 100 million, in one sense, for God's side in this pivotal war on on uh, on moral integrity that is being fought. If the government comes out like that, and it will not be easy. I, I don't. I think seven years is. Wow, I, I mean, that's a, that's a short timeline for what we want to accomplish. I think it's doable. But we've got to have the kind of the vision and the, the framework of how to move forward and the foundation to do that. So we have that here in the Philippines. We have a very strong heavenly tribal messiahship model here in the Philippines. We've got good contacts. within the. We're having our Rally of Hope on the 6th of February for the Philippines. It's a national level model. We've got very high level support from the government. We've got Grassroots Foundation and the, the Barangay levels. We've got the head of the, the National Barangay Association of the Philippines, 42,000 Barangays, so he wants to support us. I mean, so that's a big thing. That's big. We So you need this breadth and the width of your impact to have this social change and cultural change that we're looking for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I mean, I just want to commend you because you've been so steadfast for so, so long working at this, you said, you know, meetings every month for the past 12 years, just in one sense, but also to hear all the different people that are engaged and involved. Yeah. There's at some point there's going to be a, you know, a critical mass. There has to be right. Where something, there's a shift that takes place
2: steadfast, steadfast, steadfast. the model of my steadfastness, father, and mother, mm-hmm. honestly speaking, without that model, I mean, I can go home. In an hour, I can buy a ticket and be on a plane and go home. I mean, honestly speaking. And when you read Mother's Autobiography, I think it's page 79 on the English version. The title of hers is Mother of Peace. And she says herself, she says, that's the title other people have given me. And then it goes on and it says, well, how would I call myself? What nickname would I give myself? Mother of Sacrifice. She said, I, this word sacrifice is what defines my life. Other people have called me mothers of Mother of Peace. They look at the accomplishment that she's done with her husband, that she's done on her own, that we've done together as a worldwide movement. And that is definitely an attributed earned fair title. But Mother herself says her nickname is Sacrifice. And that's when you talk about the word you used was, uh, you know, what did you say? Dead fast. Dead fast. Dead fast. And that's the thing with these 12 years every month. Dr. Young didn't ask us to have a perfect education program out of the gate. He didn't ask that. He said, I just want you never to give up. And if you have the program regularly and you never give up, it will improve. Perfection will be your enemy. If it has to be perfect, then well, let's wait one more week. Let's wait one more week. You can always do that. But no, after the program, you get together, what can be better? And then the next program has to be better. And then I find myself when I give the program, I'm giving the same lectures over and over and over and over and over again. But I just, I can't help. But the night before, I will get up in the middle of the night and spend a good portion, if not all of the night, reviewing and re-editing my slides. One word here, something can make it better. And it's not because I want to make it better. I just want, I want to invest myself because if I don't invest, then when I get on stage, I don't have power. My power isn't there. And I know that. So it's out of this experience of teaching many times that if I, just take a lecture you know from my computer that I've given before and hop up on stage after breakfast it won't touch the heart of the audience. I've felt that, and the worst thing the worst experience in the world is having a lecture that falls flat I mean, <laughs> so yeah. I'm kind of avoiding pain at that point
1: I have one question if we, if we can use that as the final one what drives your desire to be a filial child to your parents
2: good question it is. My love for my physical parents, their love for me and support for me. I was, when I was growing up in high school and college, I was swimming. That was my my sport that I had chosen. They went out of their way to support me. And uh, I mean, they took me to swimming workouts and every morning, like five o'clock in the morning, and they drove me there. They would go to the swim meets with me. So it was the sacrifice, my scene, the sacrifice of my parents for me that has set in my heart. And that's the standard that I, I, I use when I met this movement, when I look at True Parents and I see their their level of sacrifice. And I'm going, this is right. This, this is the first step in that vertical tradition. We call it living for the sake of others. Great. But My question is, that's vague. Who is the other? Who, who live for the sake of the other? Who is the other? That's too vague. So I I wanna push the envelope. Who is the first other? Where is the model that is going to be set for the other? Because that's really important. And your first other that you live for are your parents because you see and recognize their sacrifice for you. And it's when you see that, then you want to respond with sacrifice. There, There is this immediate, urgent, wanting to give more than what you have received. That's why father said, The only give and take based on love is always increasing because whatever you receive, you want to pay back more. And that person receives that and they want to pay back more than what you paid. And it's this competition to live for the sake of others based on love, a substantial concept of love. And so that's why the Bible says, honor your father and mother. It doesn't say love them. Honor them. Do something. It's not just an emotional word. It's an action word. Honor them. What are you going to do to honor them? And then also, what can you avoid doing that would dishonor them? Whoa, that, then it becomes really clear <laughs> in the sexuality. Well, sexuality isn't so clear when you're young, but you can dishonor your parents, your family by misusing sex. And that becomes immediately obvious. So this honor your father and mother, that's the first other in the ladder. And then it goes higher while well, you honor your family but above the family is the community, and above the community is the nation, and above the nation is the world, and above the world is God. So it's that first step is really important. That's the model of the paradigm that you will learn. That's where you will inculcate those values. It becomes experiential, no longer just intellectual. You experience it. That's why the family is important. And particularly the the parent-child relationship is critically important for learning of this filial heart. And where I learned it there, and then you apply it. You know, in society, when you when you go out into society, in a very natural way, natural order. Good question. Nobody asked me that before. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I mean, because you're so so driven to and uh, to serve true parents, right? You dedicate your life to it. You said you said even really ca- kind of as a side comment, but how easy it would be for you to just pack it up and fly back to America, and you know, you've got your children are back home still, you know. Um, your grandchild now, and it's not like there's nothing for you in America or you know other parts of the world. But you're in Philippines right now, and and you've spent past decades bouncing around from country to country, wherever you just go, wherever you're called. Right? Let me go and-
2: back to that again. What you're raising is a really important issue, and this mother's autobiography, she, how her nickname for herself, sacrifice. When we were sent out as missionaries in 1975, many of them went back, and I'm looking at them and. Most of them, not all, but I think most went back because of kind of financial security, to be honest. Social welfare is there. You've got to get a job. If you don't have a job, you don't pay in. You don't get back. So I (laughs) I realized later, (laughs) my being out here is kind of like financial suicide. (laughs) And I decided that sacrifice. And I think that sacrifice, God will not turn away. I mean, when I joined this movement, I was in my fourth year of college at the University of Utah. I left school to join this movement, and I never graduated from college. And then I think God found a way to pay back that when Bridgeport was open, and I was able to go to UTS to get my undergraduate and my master's, and then Bridgeport opened, and then suddenly that opened up. So I feel God is, he doesn't want to be in debt. He looks for ways to kind of repay. So our Hesitation to sacrifice is kind of foolish (laughs) Mm. if we know God's heart. And God is a parent. And any parent that sees their children sacrifice wants to pay back, wants to give back. That's the nature of parental love. And so it goes back to that. Anyway.
1: All right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that last part.
2: That security,
0: honestly, is many people's catacomb, in my experience. The more you crave security, the less you're able to be free to do anything that you were born to do. (laughs) because <laughs> you're you're tethered to this security. And so that becomes your excuse for everything. And so you're a free man. No security equals freedom. <laughs> you're, you're free basing. You're just jumping. You're going for it. I like it.
2: Right, uh, so I asked God two things. I said, if I'm going to make this sacrifice, and I want two things, either good health or a short life because I, <laughs> I don't have insurance. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> you have the best insurance because you have two wonderful daughters, you know? That's, and, and one of them's in the big tech industry, which is, yeah, she'll be rich, so she'll take care of you. Don't worry. I'll, I'll,
2: I'll She's push already, you. <laughs> she set some aside for me already. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It's coming it back. Exactly. yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and that's really inspiring, too, because I think it was you, Sammy, that asked. We were talking yesterday, maybe? We were talking about retirement or something like that, or, you know, and to not even... Be thinking about retirement or craving it, or it—it's it, not even in your worldview. You're like you're gaining momentum as the days go by. Like you're gonna take over Southeast Asia. I can see it already. You're flying high. You're you're all over the place, and that's that's truly inspirational. Because honestly, again, when people are kind of winding down in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, my my grandma is now 100. It's like how you occupy your mind and your time, your energy, your spirit defines. That's like your Living legacy while you're still alive, you get to enjoy your legacy. That's the legacy of all the work that you've put in before, that you're not just resting on your laurels, but you're using that to stack and to build this really exciting life where you're gonna see the fruits within your own lifetime. It's inevitable. And and we're part of that. Like High Noon is a part of that. We're the reason High Noon can exist is because you've already built so much of a foundation with the purity, pure love movement and all that so yeah you're a huge you're a huge player in this game and we appreciate all your hard work and we're going to collaborate with you a lot throughout Good. our days yeah yeah, yeah. Exciting. and it's really it's a pleasure to interview you too because you're a live wire you're really alive when somebody's spiritually alive you get energy from them you can't help it even mm-hmm. on this stupid zoom kind of impersonal computer stuff it doesn't matter the spirit can transcend that and so yeah thank you for giving us you your your presence alone will help many people and i'm sure This podcast will be very helpful for many, many people.
2: Thank you. Thank you for reaching out uh, and for what you're doing. Yeah, let's work
0: together. Let's make it happen. Yeah,
1: that'll do it. That's
2: it.
0: (laughs) Thanks, guys. Hey, before you go, I wanted you to consider checking out High Noon Connect. So if you go to our website, highnoon.org, you'll notice, first of all, we have a brand new website, which is beautiful. And also, you'll notice that there's the opportunity to join High Noon Connect. The essence of what High Noon is morphing into is a community. We are better together, and sexual integrity involves other people, okay? If you're struggling with pornography, you need the help of brothers and sisters, of people in a community dedicated to helping lift you up. And even if you're not, if you're in a relationship and you just want more intimacy, more love, more joy, or if you're single and you just want to be a person that can live according to their values in the area of sexuality and you want to be around a group of people who are fighting in the same way, then please go to highnoon.org and sign up for High Noon Connect. There's a free version and a paid version. We want to make this as accessible as possible. And we're a nonprofit, so we're not trying to make a buck here. We're just trying to create a community off of Facebook that gives a focused conversation, focused energy, focused attention on building sexual integrity as a cultural intention. So, go to highnoon.org. We'll see you there.